This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Amir Eschel. I'm the director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe, the Freeman Spoken Institute for International Studies. It's a pleasure uh, to welcome you to our special seminar on the Ukraine and the European Union. Uh, when you hear Ukraine these days, it's certainly a topic in the news, and we're delighted that we have experts uh, on the issue uh, with us today. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guests and also say before that that the format of the seminar will be of 15 minute statements in the beginning, and then we'll open it up for questions and discussions. Our first speaker today will be uh, Stephen Piper. Ambassador Piper is Senior Advisor with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. A Stanford University graduate, he served for 25 years with the State Department, focusing on U.S. relations with the former Soviet Union and Europe, as well as on arms control and security issues. Among his duties in the State Department, allow me to mention his role as Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council between 1996 and 1997. <laughs> so we have two, two experts sitting with us uh, who served in this role. Following uh, this, he was between 1998 and 2000 U.S. Ambassador to the Ukraine and then in the following three years, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau on, uh, of European and Eurasian Affairs. Our second speaker today will be Ambassador Richard Morningstar. Ambassador Morningstar currently teaches at Stanford University's Law School and at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He holds a BA from Harvard and a JD from Stanford's Law School. Between 1995 and 1998, Ambassador Morningstar served as Special Advisor to the President and Secretary of State in regard to the former Soviet Union. After that, he served between 1999 and 2001 as U.S. Ambassador to the European Union. Again, it's a great pleasure and an honor to have these distinguished speakers with us today, and I would like to ask Ambassador Piper to begin. Thanks very much, Amir. It's a, it's a pleasure to be at Stanford once again. Um, I think as, as Dick and I talked about how we would divide up the discussion, uh, I'll focus on the Ukraine aspect, he'll focus on the European aspect. But really, um, if you look at Ukraine's approach to uh, the EU uh, over the last 15 years, it's pretty much a story that Ukrainians would argue of unrequited love. And, and really going back to the mid-1990s, uh, right after Ukraine uh, regained its independence in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine began articulating the idea that it wanted membership in the European Union. Uh, this was something that Leonid uh, Kuchma talked about in terms of his European vector for foreign policy. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that there was probably a good question as to whether or not Kuchma throughout the 90s really understood what joining Europe and joining the European Union required in terms of the sort of political and economic changes that Ukraine would have to make in terms of the really fundamental transformation of Ukraine into a, into a modern European state. Uh, and even if he did understand, uh, certainly when you look at his history as president, you don't see much in the way of actions in the 1990s or up until 2004 that reflected a desire to push Ukraine in uh, that direction of really making uh, the serious changes that countries like Poland and the Baltic states have made over the last 15 years. 
Instead, what you had under Kuchma was more an emphasis on rhetoric. So within a couple of years of signing the Partnership and Cooperation Agreement in 1994, Ukraine is already pushing for the next step in an association agreement. Uh, and this is at a time when the uh, European reaction often seems to be, well, look, you haven't even begun to fulfill the Partnership and Cooperation Agreement. How can you talk about the next step? And remember, it was in 1999 or 2000 hosting uh, Dick in, in, in Kiev. Uh, and the idea was that yeah, he could come and provide an American perspective on how the Ukrainians could engage the European Union more effectively. And a big part of his message was stop talking about ultimately being in the EU and just do things. You know, take steps in terms of democratic change, in terms of beginning to uh, uh, reform your economy that show the Europeans that you're coming in that direction, but lay off the rhetoric. And uh, I think it was a message that, that, that fell on deaf ears. Um, in 2001, 2002, the Ukrainians, I think, begin to get more realistic about how far and how fast they could go with the European Union. Uh, so Deputy Foreign Minister Chali, who had the, uh, the Europe portfolio at the time, began to talk about, well, a realistic approach is an association agreement in 2011, 2012, and membership in 2020. And he would always qualify that by saying, you know, if we do everything that we need to do. And there was an understanding, I think, in the foreign ministry and other places that you know, this was really a serious action that would require a lot of hard work, not by the foreign ministry, but by all the domestic ministries as Ukraine uh, changed itself into a political economic system that reflected the values and the standards of Europe. Um, unfortunately, at that time, you, you had sort of a general deterioration of Ukrainian-Western relations in the aftermath of the Gengadze murder, a flawed uh, parliamentary election in 2002, and real questions about where Kuchma was going with regards to democracy. Uh, the Orange Revolution in 2004 offered an opportunity to change all of that. And, and what was really interesting was how the Ukrainians turned to Europe in the middle of that crisis, where three or four days after the badly flawed runoff election, you have three or four hundred thousand people on the streets of Kyiv, demonstrations in other Western Ukrainian cities, but Yushchenko and Viktor Yanukovych, the two uh, antagonists, are not talking to one another at all. And, and Kuchma can't get them together. So Kuchma then starts working the phones. He calls President Kwasniewski in Poland. He calls the Dutch Prime Minister. At that time, the Dutch had the presidency of the European Union. He calls Javier Solana, the High Representative for Common <coughs> Foreign Security Policy, and basically says, can you guys come help? And by most accounts, Kwasniewski was the most effective and active of the mediators in the roundtable discussions that ensued. I mean, he was the one who, for a variety of reasons, had more freedom to engage. He understood the situation. He was more concerned. But Solana's importance was when Solana walked into that room, the European Union was there. And I, I remember talking to one senior Ukrainian uh, uh, foreign ministry official who was in the room during the roundtables. And he said, with Solana there, it was apparent to everybody that, okay, we're now being watched by Europe and the European <coughs> Union. And even Yanukovych, he said, was on better behavior because across the spectrum in that room, he says, despite their political differences, they all ultimately wanted to see Ukraine in the EU. Now, in the aftermath of the Orange Revolution, you've got Yushchenko as the uh, as president from January 2005, and he basically jettisons Kuchma's multi-vector foreign policy and says, we have one primary goal, and that's to bring Ukraine into Europe and the Euro-Atlantic community. Uh, and they begin agitating almost immediately. Let's, and again, this is some more of the rhetorical verse, but what can we do to go beyond the current basis in EU-Ukraine relations? That was defined on the basis of a 2004 EU-Ukraine action plan, which is really based on implementation of the 1994 Partnership and Cooperation Agreement. 
So already, though, you have agitation. The Ukrainians want something more. But the Ukrainians also begin thinking about, are there things that they can do uh, that will be attractive to the European Union? So in the spring of 2005, for example, <coughs> Ukraine gets much more actively engaged on trying to broker a solution to the Transnistrian conflict. There are a variety of factors behind this, but one major factor was a Ukrainian recognition that this is an important question in Brussels. And Ukraine wants to show it can make a serious contribution to a more stable and secure Europe. That, that's a big factor there. Also, in the second half of 2005, Ukraine makes the decision and begins uh, across the board associating itself with the common foreign security policy declarations of the European Union, even though it's a non-member and, and at that point does not have a membership perspective. Um, Yushchenko, in contrast to Kuchma, understands what Ukraine has to do to become a member, and he's serious about making it happen. Uh, the other question, though, is uh, how effective was he? And I think this was a story of a really a, a lost opportunity. In, in 2005, in the aftermath of the Orange Revolution, there was probably some readiness on the part of the EU to take a look at Ukraine in a different way. Uh, certainly, it was seen as a major democratic breakthrough. Uh, but you really can't say that the Yushchenko presidency capitalized on this. Uh, the relationship that he had with his prime minister, his first prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko, did not work well. The governments often had competing agendas, sometimes were directly contradicting one, one another between the presidency and the prime minister. Uh, and they ultimately split in September of 2005. Uh, missed opportunity there. They also had problems just organizing themselves to engage the European Union. So right off the bat, uh, Yushchenko appointed a special deputy prime minister to focus on the question of integrating Ukraine into the European Union, uh, but also gives parallel authorities to the foreign ministry and gives his deputy prime minister really no staff, no resources. So the organizational structure doesn't work very well. Uh, 2006, of course, you have the return to Viktor Yanukovych in the aftermath of the Rod election. Uh, and with a set of constitutional changes that have led to, uh, it led in part to the current constitutional crisis in Ukraine, you have an empowered prime minister. And it fairly quickly becomes uh, apparent that this cohabitation between President Yushchenko and Prime Minister Yanukovych is not working well. But having said that, one area where I think the two are in agreement is on the question of the European Union. And if you look across the political spectrum in Ukraine, Perhaps with the exception of the Communist Party, everybody agrees uh, in the political that they would like to see Ukraine in the EU. It doesn't have some of the connotations that NATO does that are problematic. When you do public uh, opinion polls, 60 to 70 percent of the population in Ukraine says they would like to be in the European Union, including sizable numbers in eastern Ukraine. And again, this is very different from surveys regarding opinion with regards to NATO, where typically only about 20 to 25 percent support Ukraine ultimately being in NATO. Uh, you have Yushchenko continuing to push for integration with ultimately membership in the European Union, and perhaps a little bit harder in the last six months when it's become clearer that given his division with Yanukovych over the question of NATO, that the NATO track is, is, is somewhat unclear at this point. Yanukovych, though, also, and this is sort of interesting, it has gone through a number of changes. Um, a number of people in the aftermath of his return to power, say this is somebody who thinks about Europe differently. And he certainly talks the uh, talk and he says, oh, we want to have Ukraine in Europe, we want to uh, be in the European Union. 
but in a couple cases has made decisions that suggest maybe he really believes it. So, so one of the questions that Ukraine has had to deal with over the last four or five years is, how does it balance its relationship with the European Union vis-a-vis -vis the Russian desire to build a common economic space, including Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus? And the crunch point here is the Russians don't want just a free trade arrangement. They want a customs union. But Yanukovych was very explicit on this point in November. He basically said, we're not going to do a customs union with a common economic space with Russia, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, because that would be a hindrance to our desire to get a free trade agreement with Europe and the European Union. So on a couple key questions where he's had to make a choice, Yanukovych has done a lean towards the West. Increasingly, Ukraine's economy is now oriented towards the European Union. I think last year, 32% of Ukraine's trade was with the EU, and that now slightly eclipses the trade uh, relationship with Russia. If you remove oil and gas from the equation between Ukraine and Russia, the EU relationship just dwarfs what uh, goes on between Russia and Ukraine. And you also increasingly have uh, a push from business people in Ukraine who are beginning to see that their economic futures make more sense with Ukraine linked into the European Union. Um, the value of a special relationship with Russia is declining when you understand that Russia is no longer prepared to su subsidize energy prices for Ukraine. And in, in September, I had a chance to talk to one of the Ukrainian oligarchs. He basically said, in January of 2006 in the gas war, Vladimir Putin sent me a message. And that message is, in two years, I should expect to pay $250 to $300 per thousand cubic meters of gas, the same price they pay in Germany. He says, I've got that message. I'm now investing hundreds of millions of dollars in technologies and, uh, and energy uh, uh, production equipment that get me off of gas. And increasingly, these oligarchs are looking towards Europe and, and, and drawing lessons you know, not unlike those that Mikhail Hordakovsky drew, uh, drew several years ago. I mean, they don't want the full Hordakovsky experience. They, they hope it'll stop short of, uh, of arrest and, and, and asset stripping. But they've come to that conclusion that if they can be players in the EU and become European businessmen as opposed to Ukrainian businessmen and have the opportunity to do IPOs, list on Western stock exchanges, you know, they can dramatically increase their net wealth. And, and so you have these groups, including within the Regents' Party, Yanukovych's party, that I think are increasingly looking and saying, Ukraine needs to orient itself more towards the European Union. Uh, what does Ukraine want now from the EU? Uh, largely, there still, I think, tends to be a focus more on uh, rhetoric and symbolism. Uh, they now operate on the basis of a partnership and cooperation agreement. The next step for the EU would be an association agreement, but that's a step too far in the EU eyes. So the Ukrainians have come up with this proposal, and in March they begin negotiation of what's called an enhanced agreement. Uh, typical with the Ukrainians are to be able to show that there's some, there's some movement by creating intermediary steps. There is still some desire in Kiev for a membership perspective of the European Union. And when you talk to Ukrainians, you get a lot of frustration that they say, look, with regards to NATO, there's an open door policy. And somebody like uh, <coughs> Deputy Foreign Minister Chali would say, I know that if we get our economy right, get the democratic institutions consolidated, show that we can make a contribution, we have a chance to be a member of NATO. What they say, though, is there's never been any language from the European Union that allows them to have that similar hook. And there's also, coupled with that, a concern that the EU neighborhood, or the European neighborhood policy, which covers Ukraine, is in part, first, it lumps them together with countries like Northern Africa. And they can keep this right to understand, you know, what does that mean? And second, there's a, a fairly clear concern 
that the EU neighborhood policy is not a membership track, that it stops somewhere well short of that. Uh, other things that they're looking for, they, uh, when Ukraine enters uh, the World Trade Organization, the EU has said that they're prepared to negotiate the free trade agreement. That's a very high priority across the board in Kyiv. Uh, another focus is a visa regime. And they hope over the summer to negotiate a new visa regime between Ukraine and the European Union. That would at least recoup some of the ground that they lost when Central Europe joined the EU in 2004. Ukraine used to have visa fee travel with Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, but lost that when those countries moved into the European Union. Um, and finally, there is some thought in, in Ukraine about the value of linking into European energy markets. Can they use the Odessa Bode pipeline to move Caspian energy into Central Europe? Can they somehow link into uh, EU energy markets in a way that might give them a little bit more protection in the, uh, if there's a future gas war with the Russians? A couple words on some problems that the Ukrainians may encounter. First of all, just the sheer number of economic reforms that they have to accomplish to be seen as sort of ready for EU membership. There's a lot to do there. They've also got to do a lot in terms of growing the economy. I think the GDP per capita in Ukraine now is between a quarter and a fourth of what it is in Poland. And, and that's going to be a, a big impediment. Uh, there's not a lot of enthusiasm to bring in a large, poor country. Another potential problem is that all Yanukovych wants to be in the European Union uh, I think there's a question, is his cabinet ready to play by rules that are acceptable to the European Union? And one of the things, unfortunately, that we've seen in the last six months with this cabinet is the return of some of the bad practices from the Kuchma era. Uh, corruption uh, with regard to administration of tax policies and such, and, and definitely playing by some rules that are not regarded as acceptable in the EU, and, and that may be an impediment. A third problem is, is, is democracy, although I think Ukraine has made huge progress in the last several years. The democracy in Ukraine, as we're seeing now, is still very immature in the sense that there is right now a almost constant focus on the struggle for political power, uh, but not a lot of attention on actually taking that power and doing it or using it to, to run the country. Uh, and, and finally, a problem which may be out there down the road is the question of Russia. Right now, Russia seems to be very comfortable about Ukraine's relationship with the European Union. In part because I think in Moscow they come to the correct calculation that any serious effort to bring Ukraine to the EU is, is, is years down the road. But were Ukraine to be able to change that relationship and were it to appear that Ukraine actually had a serious prospect, you know, I, I'm, I'm not so sure that the Russians would remain that unconcerned. I, I think to the extent that Ukraine's perspectives begin to grow, there might be more concern uh, in Russia. And, and the Russians might become more looking for ways to slow that down. Finally, my last comment would just be the observation that I think the European Union has enormous attraction within Ukraine. Um, Yanukovych, in the last six months, I think has been better behaved in general in terms of policies, in part because he wants to be acceptable uh, in the European Union. Uh, it was interesting that in the middle of this political crisis, uh, last week you had Yanukovych in Strasbourg, you had Yushchenko in Brussels. I mean, both of these guys, in the midst of this political crisis, are taking time to go to the European Union and lay out their case uh, because they see value uh, in, in, in having the EU understand where they're coming from and, and hopefully uh, support from the European Union. And one question I, I, I hope the EU thinks about is how can they use this attraction? I mean, this is, this is leverage. How can they use that to encourage Ukraine to adopt you know, the still-needed political and economic reforms that would make Ukraine, one, a, a much better neighbor for the EU to have, 
you know, and hopefully at some point down the road uh, would make uh, Ukraine a, a real uh, prospect as a uh, respected member. Thanks, Steve, and I'll, I'll try to be brief and not repeat what you've talked about, and I'll present sort of the mirror image uh, of your talk uh, from the European standpoint. First of all, I think the one basic proposition, Ukraine is a part of Europe. If you look at any kind of cultural, historical, religious, geographical map, Ukraine qualifies. I think my late grandmother, who came from Odessa, uh, would uh, be very upset if uh, people uh, told her that she was uh, that she's not a European. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly, if uh, Turkey were to qualify for the EU and would be considered as a part of Europe. Uh, Ukraine should qualify as being a part of Europe. Ukraine is a member uh, of the Council of Europe. It's a member of the OSCE. Uh, it aspires, uh, sort of, as you said, uh, uh, to NATO. Uh, the, the issue relating uh, to Ukraine's uh, integration with Europe is political, and it's a serious political question. Does Ukraine share Europe's predominant uh, political values. It's a real question mark. And I think the fact of life today is that a majority of European leaders, uh, and certainly a majority of the European population, do not see Ukraine as a member of the European Union in anything like the foreseeable future. Uh, and we can talk. Uh, we can talk a little bit about why, but they're also they're deal apart from any number of other issues that I'll get into. They're dealing with Turkey. They have to worry about the Balkans. Uh, there are. It's. It, I think in the European mindset, it's it's a long time before they would really ever seriously consider Ukraine, which raises which raises some. Issues. <coughs> How's Europe, how's Europe dealt with the issue? Well, you really explained it, Steve. I think they've ducked the issue. Uh, essentially, uh, they've ducked the issue by putting the burden constantly back on Ukraine. Uh, they'll say to Ukraine, yeah, you make the economic changes, you make the political changes, you make it a self-fulfilling prophecy, and maybe uh, at some point in the future we'll consider it. Uh, your, uh, your comment about our my trip to Kiev when I was ambassador of the EU, what actually happened, what really happened prior to going to Kiev was that I got a call one day from Leon Firth, who was the national security advisor uh, to Vice President Gore. There had been a meeting of the Gore-Kuchma Commission, uh, which I had been involved in when I was dealing more with that part of the world, and Leon, Leon said that the Vice President had promised Kuchma, who was complaining about Europe, that I would go to Kiev and tell them how to get into the EU. Uh, at which point I said, oh, uh, and called Steve. <laughs> so I, I trotted off to Kiev and we met with, uh, I don't remember that we actually met with Kuchma. <laughs> we met with Yushchenko, right? When Yushchenko, I was going to say, when Yushchenko was prime minister and several of several other cabinet members, and, and basically made the argument that Steve talked about that yeah, do the things that are necessary uh, and uh, and make it that uh, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Steve sort of expressed, Steve expressed and talked about where we are today. 
there certainly have been ups and downs and, may, and mostly downs during the second uh, uh, Kuchmer administration. And Steve described how Yushchenko uh, embraced Europe and how European integration is a top priority now and how Yanukovych seems to also be uh, supporting uh, European integration. Uh, but Europe continues to be less than forthcoming. Uh, yet Europe help, has helped, uh, the EU has helped Ukraine with respect to WTO accession. Uh, they've recognized Ukraine as a market economy. Uh, they've worked with Ukraine as political issues have, have come up. But that's basically small potatoes uh, because the EU has not really moved beyond the partnership and cooperation agreement which Steve described and is the type of agreement that the EU has with basically all post-Soviet uh, states. Uh, they're, they're, gonna, they're trying to utilize uh, the EU neighborhood policy. They're not moving towards an association agreement which would set the roadmap as to how Ukraine could become a member of the EU. Uh, and, and that's that's really the key prize. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, in my view, it's almost become a vicious circle. Uh, the EU consistently pushes back on Ukraine. Uh, you do the reforms. Ukraine, I think, at some level recognizes that the EU really isn't very interested. And at least a lot of people in, the, in Ukraine, I would argue, therefore don't have the incentive uh, to, uh, uh, to, push, uh, to push forward. Uh, why in Europe, why is the EU uh, so, uh, uh, what's the right word, uh, have, su have such a conflicting view with respect to Ukraine and Ukraine's possible membership uh, in the EU? Several reasons, I would argue. Uh, first reason, the failure of the Constitution uh, has had a really deadening effect uh, on enlargement. Uh, <clears throat> the French vote and the Dutch vote uh, against ratifying the Constitution, in part anyway, there are a lot of reasons for it, which we could have a whole separate seminar on, but in part, uh, I think, with some concern over enlargement and the effects of enlargement and the effects on the economic security of uh, uh, European citizens. The second factor, which uh, I think is a major factor, is the whole question of enlargement fatigue. Uh, the EU is absor has over the last had ten new members in 2004, two new members Bulgaria and Romania, which have, which have been very difficult in both cases. Uh, in, in January of 2007, they're trying to figure out and they're muddling along, but how are they going to operate the 27 countries? Uh, within uh, within the EU structure, and they they, they still have to deal uh, and worry about well what are we going to do about Turkey which nobody's too excited about or very few are very excited about in Europe what are we going to do about the Balkans the last thing that Europe wants to think about is right now is the idea of Ukraine uh, being a member of the EU and another another 46 million formerly 51 million uh, citizens. A third factor, uh, I would call it the Groundhog Day Syndrome. Uh, remember the movie Groundhog Day? Every day you wake up and it's the same. Well, I think there's sort of that feeling about Ukraine. Uh, and that, you know, in spite of, in spite of uh, 
in spite of efforts within Ukraine and in spite of some improvement that maybe Ukraine doesn't get enough credit for, there's a perception anyway that Ukraine really never changes and that every day you wake up and it's the same. Uh, and I think that many in Europe really don't trust that, the, that Ukraine is capable, uh, or maybe that's not the right word, has the will to take the necessary steps that would ultimately make uh, uh, Ukraine a candidate. The, the huge disappointment with Kuchma during his second term, even the, 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 the political upheavals that are taking place now, even though hopefully it'll work out, uh, I think is something that would not uh, bring a lot of confidence. And I think just as Steve pointed out that Russia is a concern uh, on the Ukrainian side, I think Russia is a concern on the European side. And what effect, uh, what effect would closer association with Ukraine and ultimately Ukraine membership uh, in the EU mean to the EU's uh, relationship with Russia and, uh, and how would they react? I think there is some light on the other side of the issue uh, after sounding so, sounding relatively negative. Uh, I think there are at least three pressure points uh, that are uh, in effect right now. One, uh, the European Parliament has passed resolutions uh, asking that an, ex that an association agreement uh, be entered into with Ukraine. So the Parliament, there is support for Ukraine in the European Parliament. Um, Second of the, the, are the accession states uh, within, within the EU. Countries like Poland, uh, as Steve was talking about, other Central and Eastern European countries who could put pressure ultimately uh, within, from within the EU uh, to uh, be more accepting of Ukraine and ultimately uh, for Ukrainian uh, integration. Uh, a third factor that you briefly mentioned I think that could be an important factor is the whole energy issue. Uh, the expansion of the Odessa-Brody pipeline into Plok in Poland, uh, the possibility of getting more Caspian resources uh, into Europe uh, through Ukraine uh, and not through Russia uh, is, is certainly a possibility that can be worked through. And I think cooperation between Ukraine and uh, the EU on energy uh, could also be a factor that could be a confidence building measure. Uh, so, you know, I think things look doubtful, certainly for the uh, immediate future uh, or even the foreseeable future. But uh, as uh, President Clinton once said to the chagrin of Europeans about uh, possible Russian integration into the EU, never say never. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassadors, Pfeiffer and Morningstar. Before uh, opening uh, the table and the stage for discussion, I'd like to ask those who present questions and or comments to please identify yourself with name and affiliation. And in so asking and doing, who would like to be the first? Please. Uh, my name is Yuri Ermagail. I'm a visiting fellow at Hoover Institution now, but I'm also former Soviet dissident who fought together with my fellow Ukrainian dissidents for human rights and democracy there, still in the 70s. I visited Ukraine soon after the revolution to discuss with new leaders that situation, to share experience. And I met with Mr. Rybachuk, who at that moment was responsible in the government for integration 
the grain into the European Union. And actually, I actually tried to talk him out because I think it's bad for Ukraine to join uh, European Union. And I gave several reasons to them. I wouldn't say all of them now. Well, specific reason, for example, is Ukrainian agriculture, or more specifically, Ukrainian village. I believe that, which was greatly destroyed, as we know, by the Soviet communism. And Ukrainian village means for Ukraine more than economic, only economic part, but it's also cultural and social part. And I believe that the Ukrainian village has very little chance for rebirth under the European Union control. And we can talk why, but I can uh, definitely explain. But there is more general reason. Ukraine wanted to be independent. Finally, it got its independence. And I think that it's very crucial for Ukraine to find its national identity, which it, it's still searching for after so many years not being an independent country. And I don't think to try to find such identity in very rigid framework of the European Union is a good idea for that country. That's what I told you, we're just part of one empire and you are rushing to join another empire without enjoying independence. What I thought it was would be much better solution for Ukraine is on one hand to join NATO, but and you say it's it's not easy, I believe that. And but on the other hand, to search for some new arrangement, some union, for example, with Poland in terms of economic and political, with Poland, Lithuania, United States, and Canada, and possibly Australia, which I think would, would be much better from an economic and political standpoint for Ukraine than joining the European Union. Now, I was given two major arguments why Ukraine wants to join the European Union. One, first is is very simple and open and to protect themselves from Russia. That's most simple. And that's why I say NATO would be better in that sense. But another argument, which is typical among Ukrainian Democrats and human rights activists, etc., which they wouldn't speak about so openly, is that most of them do not believe in their own people. Actually, they do not believe in Ukrainian democracy. They don't believe that Ukraine by itself is able to build its democracy, and they want external force, you know, which would project that democracy on themselves, which I think it's a very weak position, because if you want to become democratic, you have to do it by your own. And last two points I want to make concerning your remarks. Let's do it short so we can open up. Please. Uh, Concerning European Union, you equate in your presentations European values and European <coughs> Union, which I wouldn't do. I don't think European Union represents European values in sense of freedom, democracy, and free market. So it's it's not equivalent things to me. And second, one of objections by European Union, which is, I believe, quite evident. Uh, European, Union, European Union wants to be in love with Russia, even if it's ruled by the KGB. And we see it and we know it. Now, what becomes a real obstacle for that? It's new members like Poland, 
And you, we can see from all recent events that <coughs> Poland is a real obstacle, you know, for Germany, France, Italy, you know, to be in love with Putin. And, and they don't like it. And they can assume that if they bring Ukraine into European Union, it, it may be additional serious obstacle for such love, and that shouldn't be disregarded. Thank so, you. <laughs> Any comment? <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure what the question was, but. A couple of observations. I mean, I, I, I think the idea of a Ukrainian, Poland, Lithuanian, U.S., Canada economic range, I, I think that's unrealistic. You know, I think Poland, the Baltic states, but now in the European Union, the idea that they're going to do side arrangements with Ukraine, I think, is that's just not possible. Um, I, I do agree with you that the question, and I, and I think this is a weakness that we would probably, you know, we, we both talked to the Ukrainians about in the 1990s, is it would be better if Ukraine was embracing the democratic values of a modern European state on its own and not saying we need to have the European Union to push us into this. Uh, so we, we agree there, but, but I, I think coming back to it, looking at where Ukraine is now, uh, it, it has this fundamental decision. Does it want to be a part of Europe? If it wants to be a part of Europe and, and really be fully engaged, moving towards the European Union is a logical policy choice. And if you look at where the elite is now, but also I think increasing where the U Ukrainian public is, you know, they haven't made that decision with regards to NATO, but I think they have made that decision with regards to the European Union. Norman. Um, I actually, I want to ask a kind of short version of that question, <laughs> but, but specifically of you, Steve, and that is, I mean, you say there were missed opportunities, yeah. but I, th I think the, the the deeper question is, what are the structural impediments in Ukraine for joining Europe? In other words, um, do you see this simply as a political decision at the top? Or, you know, again, again Richard is expressing the idea that Europeans have this kind of fundamental distrust of Ukraine as the kind of entity that would, could join it. Do you, do you have, share that distrust? Or do you think that this really is a matter of, you know, a, a missed opportunity here or there? Or are there deeper structural yeah. causes which make it impossible for Europe to, okay. I mean, for Ukraine to get to Europe? Yeah. Uh, two parts. I, mean, I, I think the missed opportunity in 2005 was that it, the armed revolution really got a lot of people's attention in the West. I mean, it was, right, it was within like, I think, within a month that you had the European Parliament passed the resolution calling on the European Union to create a membership perspective. And had Ukraine moved forward in the way that I think a lot of people were hoping, and probably our hopes and expectations in retrospect were, were wildly optimistic. Uh, but had it been able to move forward and say, okay, look, now we are consolidating democratic institutions. We're, we're, now, we're now moving towards a more normally functioning political system. And certainly what you saw in Ukraine involved was democratic, but it's, it, I think, creates some unease when you see what's happening now, uh, looking in from, uh, from the European Union. But also more on the economic side, they might not have been able to change attitudes completely, but there was probably that window where I think they could have had people thinking about Ukraine in a different way before some of the problems that Dick mentioned set in, which was the realization that, oh my God, we've just taken in 10 countries in 2004, and that's going to be really hard. And then you had, of course, in, in May and June, the failure of the constitutional votes in, in France and uh, Netherlands. Netherlands, yeah. Uh, but I think there's sort of three things the Ukrainians, you know, we really need to come to grips with. I mean, one is, 
On politics, in the last couple of years, I think they have a system which is fundamentally democratic. But it's democratic so far, and I think we're seeing it right now in a somewhat erratic way. Uh, it, it certainly is a pleasant contrast compared to politics in Russia. You, you do have real viewpoints, real battles going on, but it's almost too much. I mean, it's, it's immature in the sense that the political forces seem to be just so focused on that struggle for power that they're not trying to, that they can't box off and say, Yushchenko and Yanukovych don't seem to be able to say, okay, we're going to disagree on this question in terms of where the authorities lie, but here's our scenarios we're going to work together in terms of maybe WTO or economic change. They haven't been able to do that, and I think that's a level of maturity that Europeans would like to see. There's still a lot that needs to be done in the economy, and a lot of that will turn on, you know, can they move away from fairly massive corruption and a system in the government where you still have a lot of members of the RADA who are also business people, you know, and they're not pursuing government country, national interests, they're pursuing the interests of you know, their particular businesses. So some separation of that, uh, which I, I, is doable, it's probably going to take a number of years. And then the last thing is they, they've had five years now of positive economic growth, but I think they have to sustain that because ultimately, even if they have a system where uh, the European Union can look at Ukraine and say, you know, that's a political system they're on par with what you see in, in Lithuania or Poland, and the economy's moving around, it, it, it's reached the point of, say, Slovakia or Bulgaria, even if you get there, the hesitation about Ukraine is going to say, my God, this is a country of 46 million people. And if there is a huge income gap still between Ukraine and the EU, there's going to be a lot of reluctance, and the Ukrainians are going to have to change that on their own. Yeah, I, I think there's a huge problem that goes beyond Ukraine, that goes even beyond uh, Ukraine taking uh, a lot of the steps that uh, we would think would be necessary. I think there's a real danger that if the e that if the EU goes ahead with an association agreement and starts and, and sets up some kind of roadmap and creates all sorts of expectations within Ukraine that it could just lead to a major disappointment. I think that there's a, that, that it's similar to what's happening in Turkey right now. I mean, I have a real question, what, whatever Turkey does uh, in the next uh, several years, whether Turkey would ever be uh, acceptable uh, to the EU as an actual member when it comes to, when it comes to uh, uh, votes uh, and the like. And France, for example, which changed its constitution to require, uh, uh, to require a popular vote for Turkey to uh, uh, be ultimately accepted. So in the likewise, in the case of Ukraine, is it, the EU should not start down a road towards accession uh, to do something that might be politically, uh, uh, <coughs> politically advantageous in the very short term. Uh, they have to be serious and have to really believe that if Ukraine takes the steps that they would be admitted. And I have serious question uh, whether uh, there is that kind of belief in Europe right now. And it will be a long time before there might be. So please a name and affiliation. Sure. Uh, my name is Zenon Zubretsky and I've attended uh, Chris a lot of sessions here for years and supported them and by profession I'm uh, Silicon Valley microcircuit technologist, but now I'm retired, so I <laughs> participate in those important matters. Uh, my questions are to why are you so certain about Yanukovych's intention to be European? Because his deeds are otherwise. To me, he looks like a Putin's lackey. He doesn't do nothing independent. 
He never criticizes Russia, but always criticizes the West. The other intention is uh, uh, energy-wise, how he handles it. Uh, uh, I participated in a visit of uh, uh, Timoshenko uh, in Washington this month or two ago, and I talked with her and also with the TD International Partner about the matters, how it's going with Ukraine. And they mentioned to me that the American company is trying to uh, uh, start uh, gas, uh, searching for gas in Ukraine, which have proven, and also the shelf energy sources. And somehow they, they try to approach the government, the Yanukovych government, there's no answers, and they frustrate it. So do you think that he really works for Ukraine benefit? or even oligarchs' benefits, but he just does whatever Putin wants, sabotaging everything economically and politically for Ukraine to move yeah. west. Where do you see okay. the proof in that thing? Okay. One more short one. I have a feeling that if I was a European, I would be uh, dangerous for people like Yanukovych to participate and vote in European Parliament because it will be a stick that Putin will be putting into our spokes of our bicycle, Ukraine bicycles. <laughs> uh, let, me, let me talk about uh, yeah, Yanukovych. I mean, when I was in Kyiv about a month and a half after he became prime minister, um, I, I guess uh, I talked to about 25 or 30 people from people close to Yushchenko to people close to Yanukovych. Uh, I was struck by, I guess, two-thirds of the folks I talked to said, this is a different Yanukovych from the Yanukovych who was Prime Minister under Kuchma. Uh, now, you can't quantify this stuff. A number said, okay, a lot of it is just the veneer. And, and you, you could see that when Yanukovych came yeah, to Washington. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, he's a much better uh, public spokesman than he was three years ago. Uh, but I was struck by even a, a couple of people very close to the Yushchenko camp, who I thought were, were pretty serious observers within Ukraine, said, as one put it, he said, Yanukovych has, has changed. He says, I can't tell you how much. He said, but the task that the United States and, and Europe should take on is working with him to help him change further. Uh, Yanukovych never struck me as somebody with a strong ideological view one way or the other. Uh, I think it's a mistake to say that he is pro-Russian. I, I think he pursues policies that are perhaps more uh, sympathetic to Russian views than Yushchenko. But I don't think, I think it's a mistake to say that he's driven primarily by orders coming from Moscow. Uh, certainly in, the, in, in, in one major case, I mean, the Russians have been pushing very hard for five years now on the common economic space. They've also made very clear that they wanted a customs union. You know, Yanukovych, you know, that, that's a fork in the road. And when Yanukovych had that choice, he said, no, we want to choose the European way. We're not going to do the customs union. Um, We'll have to see how some of this evolves. I, I do think also, I mean, Yanukovych, if you look at the Regents Party, you know, it's not a monolith. You've got you know, several different wings. I mean, I think, for example, Deputy Prime Minister Azarov has a certain group, and, and that group, I think, may well be pro-Russian. I don't think they change. But, but, I, but I would say there's a group that's a little bit different from Yanukovych. I also think, though, that people like Renat Akhmetov, uh, the, the largest and richest oligarch, and, I think he's looking at this also so from an economic perspective. And the economics, I think, are leading people like him to say, wait, there may be more value in looking towards Europe. And Yanukovych you know, has to pay attention to those voices. What effect did the Orange Revolution itself have on him, do you think? Uh, I, I had, again, several people told me that you know, 
the armed revolution, I mean, Yanukovych went off and thought about it, and however you see it, I mean, there were basically at one point 600,000 people in the streets of Kiev protesting against him. I, I, I can't tell I mean, if that were me, that would have some impact. I, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what that would be. And I can't tell you what is on Yanukovych. Um, and this is, this is one of those things, I mean, you know, for, for, for our colleagues still in the U.S. government, you know, how do you quantify that change? How do you know for sure? I mean, I, I think the policy prescription is, you know, you assume that maybe he has changed. You assume that you can change it more, and, it, and it, I think it's the argument for engagement to try to, try to move even further. The last comment is on, on the energy thing, and I think the energy question is going to be a, a very clear signal of where the, uh, the Ukrainians go. But, it, but on the particular question you mentioned about uh, using the... Um, exploiting the uh, shelf of the Black Sea. In fact, uh, Vamco, which was the major investor, I think actually now has its project going forward. So th there may now be some signs that although it's slow, and I think if, if you were to list uh, Ukrainian cabinet members of concern, Mr. Boyko, who heads the energy uh, ministry, would be on that list. But it does seem that you know, he is beginning to open that up a little bit to, uh, to Western investments. So it's worth tracking. May I have just a comment, a brief one? <laughs> I think Yanukovych is an excellent PR firm, and they teach him how to talk. Yeah, he has an excellent PR yeah. firm, and, and, and I mean, no, when he when he came they to uh, when he came when he, when he came to CSIS, uh, he made he made a speech that ninety percent of the audience, if they were asked to write the speech you'd want to hear from the Ukrainian Prime Minister, would have wrote ninety percent of that speech. I hope it's not Bursam Marsto. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the question we have to know, you know, I mean at, at some point, you know, do they move beyond just sort of saying it actually to believe it? And, and I, I think that there is still I would not bet a huge amount of money, but I think it's a mistake to sort of assume that with Yanukovych you're only going to get a pro Russian policy. Uh, and the goal ought to be to say, let's find ways where we can bring them more towards the West, exploit that, and try to push them in that direction. See, like Ahmed, who had the chance to show his hand, he's not showing his hand. It's only PR. There's uh, only uh, talk. And he hasn't done nothing to further uh, really Ukraine. I'm so sorry. Please, last question. Um, yeah. Nancy Coleman, history department, and from Greece. And uh, I just want you to say a bit more about the neighbor's policy and how you think that the EU is using that neighbor's policy to sort of be pleasant but to push people out? Um, uh, well, that's what they're doing. Basically, said, uh, ba basically the, EU, the, EU is, the EU has recognized that there are a lot of neighborhood countries uh, that uh, are, not, are never going to become a member of the EU, uh, that they need to find some kind of alternative uh, to provide some benefits from the standpoint of uh, trade uh, and economic cooperation and other cooperation in return for those countries taking, taking more steps towards democracy and economic reform. But it's sort of uh, a, uh, a way to deal with the Georgia Armenias, Azerbaijans, uh, Ukraines, uh, even maybe some of the North African countries. Uh, and uh, without uh, to give them something, but not giving them the big prize. Excuse me. Is your gut feeling that any of these little countries will get to squeeze through, or not during our lifetime? <laughs> Please. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Stephen Rogers. I'm a student at the Greece Master's Program. Um, if you were now working in the government, if you were charged with tasks with implementing policy or trying to influence policy in Ukraine, 
uh, with whom would you be speaking in Ukraine? You know, we have this constitutional crisis. Yushchev is holding on to his very last, you know, vestiges mm -hmm. of power. Yanukovych and the cabinet are grabbing, grabbing as yeah. much as they can. Who do you go to to really influence policy yeah. in Ukraine or to try to make an impact? And going forward, how does that yeah. play out? Uh, no, the easy answer is a whole lot of people. I'll come back. I mean, there's a dilemma here because I think you know, up, up until now in, in, in the current constitutional crisis, I mean, Washington's view is we want to see a peaceful outcome consistent with democratic norms and rule of law. And not going beyond that. Some have gone beyond that. The Polish president about three weeks ago said, and we want to see early elections. So he went beyond the general democratic principle to side with, with, with Yushchenko. Washington has been very careful not to do that because um, whatever concerns that you may have about the majority coalition in the RADA, and I, and I think that they are intent on changing the balance of authority between the president and the prime minister, that coalition was still formed as a result of a basically democratic process that began with the March 2006 RADA elections. So you have on one side a democratically elected parliament, and on the other side you have a democratically elected president having, you know, an intermediate fight there. And I think it's proper that Washington not get into that. Now, having said that, I think underneath, uh, Washington is probably more sympathetic to Yushchenko because Washington looks at Yushchenko and says, this is somebody who, at least his vision, we have more confidence that his vision comports with the US vision for Ukraine, which is a democratic, stable, independent country firmly anchored in Europe. Part of the problem, though, is if you look over the last year or so, the Yushchenko government has not been as effective as people would have liked to have hoped in terms of advancing that vision. And there are questions, you know, will the Yanukovych cabinet be more, more effective? So this leads to this dilemma where on the one hand you may be sympathetic towards Yushchenko, but on the other hand, the Yanukovych government may be a government that can, is better placed and Yanukovych may be a better place to get things actually done. Uh, and it's the context of a current situation where I think there's some hope that they'll find a political compromise. Uh, but if not, if there is no compromise, it's a pretty uncertain path, and I think most of the outcomes are best questionable for Yushchenko. Who wins an election? Uh, that, that's, I think, I think one of the really ironic questions here. I mean, no, if, I mean, Yushchenko, last Friday they said, that, that it does appear that Yushchenko and Yanukovych are trying to find a compromise that would set down the road the idea of early elections. You know, if that compromise falls through, then presumably it goes back to the constitutional court. Uh, I'm not sure in my own mind that Yushchenko wins in the court. And first of all, there are a lot of questions about can the court reach an impartial decision. Uh, but then there's the, the, this argument. You know, Yushchenko's basic argument for dissolving the RADA is, in March of 2006, Ukrainian voters did not vote for individual members of the parliament. They voted for a party list. And now if you have people defecting from that party list, you are disenfranchising some percentage of those voters. And, and, and the Constitution says the majority coalition is put together on the basis of not individuals, but on, on parties. And there's a logic there. I mean, I can understand that. But if you also look at the Ukrainian Constitution, the circumstances under which the president can dissolve the RADA are pretty explicit. And it's not quite clear that this matches. I mean, there, there are arguments being made on both sides. So even the most impartial court could render a decision against Yushchenko. But even if he wins and he gets elections, the ironic thing is most polls, I think, now suggest that the elections, say, two or three months down the road, would produce a RADA that looks pretty much like this RADA. So the irony is if Yushchenko wins in the court, he gets his elections, 
elections happen, five months down the road, there's a RADA coalition that appoints Viktor Yanukovych's prime minister again. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're back to the same situation. Please. Henry uh, Bloom, I'm another semiconductor technologist and frequent watcher of the breeze. It's my perception that in the eastern Ukraine, there are 12 or 15 million people that are ethnic Russian, Russian speakers, Russian sympathizers. First question is, are these people becoming more aligned culturally, linguistically with Kiev, or are they staying just as Russian as they were? And the second question is, wouldn't Ukraine be more governable and more amenable to Europe if, in fact, they were part of Russia, not part of Ukraine? Okay. If the Russians yeah. were part of yeah. I think he means the ethnic Russians in Ukraine were part of Russia. Right. Um, <laughs> I think you need, first of all, you need to draw a distinction between ethnic Russians and Russian speakers. Uh, the number of ethnic Russians in Ukraine is probably only about 15% of the population, so that's maybe only 7 or 8 million. As opposed to Russian speakers, and probably half the population in Ukraine today still uses Russian as, as, as their first language. Um, there was, was it 1994? The NIE, in, in 1994, 1995, there was a national intelligence estimate done looking at Ukraine. It was entitled Ukraine, a Nation at Risk. And it posed as a serious, and this was the collective judgment of the U.S. intelligence community, and it posed as a serious question, in five years or ten years, will there be a Ukraine within its current borders? You know, will it go back to Russia? Will it break up or whatever? Uh, I think already by 1999, serious analysts would not ask that question. Even in eastern Ukraine, where... Uh, I, I, I don't think they're pro-Russian, but you know they're 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 more economic, they're more family ties back to Russia. There's more sympathy for the Russian position, but even in eastern Ukraine, I think the population there has a sense of evolving Ukrainian national identity. It's not as strong as in western Ukraine, uh, but it actually I think became fairly clear in 2004 during the Armed Revolution, where about a week after the flawed second election when you had the demonstrations. There was a conference um, uh, convened near Donetsk of regional leaders. And one thing that they discussed was that if Yanukovych does not become president, we should have a referendum on creating a southeastern republic of Ukraine, which would be part of Ukraine but with greater autonomy. And it was interesting to me was watching in the, in the succeeding week as a number of those uh, mayors who were there were then repudiated by their city councils. And people basically say, look, we have a political fight here. We want Yanukovych, not Yushchenko. But there seemed to be a backlash against the idea that a solution then is we think about really dividing the country in this way. So although certainly in the East they speak Russian uh, more than Ukrainian, they, I think, have a more sympathetic view towards Russia. But I don't think in the last five or six years that there is really a, a serious movement there to sort of divide and, and have eastern Ukraine go off either with Russia or as a separate entity from western Ukraine. I can make a comment. I'm from Donetsk myself. I was there. You cannot separate Russians and Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine. You know, it's more than Russian speaking. It's more united community. So to, to take only, there are both Ukrainians and Russians. There are many mixed marriages, you know, and you cannot say that if you can separate Russians only ethnically and leave Ukrainians of Eastern Ukraine. So you should speak 
either about whole separation of the whole eastern Ukraine, which would be Donetsk, Petrovsk, Kharkov, whatever, which will be about 80% of Ukrainian economy, by the way, uh, or keeping it together. So please, yeah. Um, Nadia Derkach, um, unaffiliated, worked in Soviet uh, affairs and disarmament. Um, I come from way east, uh, below Korakino, which is north of Luhansk. Um, I went to Ukrainian school. My first grade was in Ukrainian school, taught everything in Ukrainian. And I never heard Russian at that point there. I realized it's changed since we've been there. But I think that the area needs to be looked at again in terms of how un-Ukrainian it is. Because my experience was um, totally Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. This was before World War II. And of course, it became Russified later, perhaps. But I would take another look at the villages and small towns. That's my comment. Please, Christoph. Yeah, I have a little question about something you mentioned briefly, uh, Transnistria. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, um, regarding the supposed deal or the secret deal or so that was uh, signed or concluded in the past weeks between Russia and Moldova, whether Ukraine was involved in that and what Ukraine's position on Transnistria has been in the past few years. Uh, in the reports that I read, I didn't read anything on Ukraine. Yeah. So I wondered whether you could elaborate on that. But yeah, well, I, I mean, Ukraine was always, along with the OSCE and the Russians, one of the, sort of the three designated mediators for the dispute between Transnistria and Moldova. Although I think it's fair to say that throughout the end of the 1990s up until 2003, they were very passive. They, they, they were there, but they really didn't make much of a contribution. Um, early in 2005, uh, they actually became much more energetically involved in, in a couple of positive ways. One was more involved as a mediator and adopting positions that seemed, you know, to outside observers more sympathetic to Moldova as opposed to Transnistria. Uh, moreover, and I think this is one way they were working with the European Union, is they began to tighten up border controls between Transnistria and Ukraine. One of the reasons the Transnistrian economy continues to survive is it gets goods out uh, without proper customs inspection and such. I mean, it's, it's a very leaky border. And I, I, I'm not naive to think that they actually closed that border off or tightened it, but, but I think they did make some progress. They brought in, for example, EU border monitors to help them and advise them on things that they could do to tighten that border up. So in 2005, 2006, there was, I think, a much more active uh, Ukrainian presence. Now, in terms of the more recent deal, I mean, I've just seen a couple of reports that come out. It sounds like this was something that uh, uh, President Rohingya of Moldova, who seems to flip back and forth to whichever direction he thinks is most likely to give him some progress on Transnistria. But it seems this was a result of a bilateral trouble. I haven't seen any evidence that the Ukrainians were involved in this. It looks like it, it was taken you know, completely outside of the established 5 plus 2 process. Uh, just between Chisinau uh, uh, and, and Moscow. Okay. I have a question, uh, Stephen Dick, regarding the U.S. policy toward the Ukraine and the U.S. policy toward Europe, the European Union, as it deals with the Ukraine. Do you see at the moment really a cohesive U.S. policy in these two uh, regards? Uh, and if there is one, how would you define it? You've been more involved in recent years. Well, to, to, uh, I, I think there are actually fairly good channels of communication between Washington and the European Union with regards to Ukraine. 
Uh, and this goes back to really 2003, where in anticipation of the election at the end of 2004, a, a number of contacts were set up between the U.S. and the EU, uh, basically to um, ensure that we understood assistance programs that were uh, being carried out with regards to that. We didn't want to leave any holes between uh, the two programs. Uh, coordination a lot on what the public line should be. You know, what's the Western message? Uh, and, and working very closely, send the same message to, uh, to Ukraine. And then, even on the ground, a, a contact group was set up among uh, EU and, Amer and the American embassies. And the idea was basically, for example, if you had Yushchenko traveling out of town, and there was concern that his campaign visit might be harassed, if the American political section couldn't cover, I mean, okay, the Germans would go or the British would go, so that you had some Western presence these things. So pretty good cooperation, uh, which I think actually was a, intensified during the Orange Revolution, which was interesting in that Washington basically, after about a, a week in the revolution, said, we're going to let the Europeans handle this. And it, intense contacts, I mean, my, my successor in, in the office was talking, he said on a Sunday he was talking to his Dutch counterpart four and five times a day. Uh, but the, the contacts were to, were to say, you know, what do you understand what's going on there? Uh, what is your public line? Because Washington wanted to make sure its public line matched the European minister saying. Uh, and uh, this was both sides suggested. I mean, there, were, there was no effort by the United States to try to micromanage the mediation effort. And, and that actually got quite a bit of credit for the U.S. In, in, in Which was unusual on the part of the U.S. Usually we're not nearly service tank. So, so I, mean, I think there actually is a pretty good basis there, which has been built on. Uh, what, what I think has probably happened, though, uh, it, it's the Groundhog Day phenomenon that, that Dick described is, you know, you had the armed revolution, and then in September of 2005, there was a mini political crisis when Yushchenko fired Timoshenko. And then there was this sort of long drawn out period after the March 2006 elections, where, where Yushchenko could have had a coalition, could have had a prime minister of his choosing, but for reasons that are inexplicable, he, he waited and he lost the opportunity. And so I think on both sides in Washington and, and, and Brussels, there's a bit of Ukraine fatigue. And on top of that, I mean, if, if you ask somebody in Washington now, you know, what are the foreign policy priorities? It would be well, Iraq, 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 Iraq. But beyond you know, that, you have Iran, North Korea, Middle East peace process, Afghanistan. Ukraine wouldn't make the top 10. It probably wouldn't make the top 15. And in its current configuration, when Ukraine is focused and obsessed with political infighting, and it's not producing coherent policy with which the West can engage. It's just not on the radar screen. The one, the one other area where there was a lot of cooperation, I think, between the United States and Europe was on the energy issues. When, yeah. You know, when the pipelines were being shut yeah. off. And right. so I think we were uh, had a very common approach on that. Mm -hmm. One more question. Uh, maybe by a person who still didn't raise one. Sure. Go ahead. Please. Jimmy said that uh, the failure of the constitutional treaty and the enlargement uh, fatigue uh, are the reasons, among others, uh, that uh, the European Union attacks the you know, Ukraine membership issue. So to my mind, so European map, uh, Ukraine's EU membership problem is mainly, is also a European Union's own problem. So how do you see uh, the my question is, do you think that the European Union is now in a deep crisis? And how can it step out of the current situation in terms of uh, the constitutional treaty? And do you see 
how, how see the prospect of European Union integration? Uh, I guess one, I'd say that I would say the European Union is not in a deep crisis. Uh, I think that the European Union, in spite of <coughs> all the issues <coughs> that it deals with, such as such as the Constitution, trying to develop a common foreign security policy uh, and the like, uh, they still muddle through, and it may be some maybe two steps, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Other times it might be two steps forward, one step back. But basically, I think the EU uh, will, uh, it, you know, is not in a crisis mode and will continue to be an active participant, uh, both internally and externally, uh, on all issues. Uh, but with some, you know, uh, with, with some difficulties. I think with, re I think with respect to Ukraine, that for the midterm anyway, the enlargement fatigue and the constitutional crisis has sealed the fate as to any serious consideration with respect to Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that Ukraine shouldn't take those steps which are good for Ukraine anyway. Uh, that was basically our message when we were in Kiev on that trip seven, you know, seven years ago. You know, yeah, you may never get into the EU. Hopefully you will at some point. Hopefully it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But take the steps anyway because it's going to be good for Ukraine. And that's what's been hard, I think, to, uh, you know, hard, hard to convince them of. See, uh, yeah. <laughs> what is the current situation with respect to the presence of nuclear materials in Ukraine? No. There are... Uh, there are still, I think, a couple of sites uh, where there's HEU, that, but they're either in the process of being made more secure or being uh, relocated back to Russia. Uh, now, is it the Russians that are, I mean, is, is, is non-Luber money being used to... It's funded now, I think, out of the Depart Department of Energy accounts. But for example, uh, even when I was there in... Um, yeah, right outside of Kiev, there was a research reactor that was powered by highly enriched uranium. Uh, the pictures that I saw of this place in like 1995 were really worrisome. I mean, I mean the HEU fuel, which was 90% enriched, so it was very high quality stuff, was basically kept behind a wooden door that had a kind of flimsy looking padlock. Uh, the trees and the bushes had grown over the fence around the building. Uh, and basically, with, with, with U.S. money, we, went, we did a project where we, we installed a vault and we paved out you know, 150 feet around the building in every direction, triple fences, barbed wire, motion detectors, all sorts of things. Uh, there are a couple projects now um, where they're trying to actually get the material relocated back to Russia. Uh, I think there's one uh, institute in Kharkiv which still thinks even though it has no planned use for the HEU, still thinks that this has huge economic value, so it's been a little bit sticky. Uh, but certainly the situation is much better than it was in the early 1990s. One question in the back, please, yeah. This is just a very short question. Yeah. But, uh, the, uh, what signal is the U.S. sending by, at this point, uh, there's a tariff that's holding funding and support for the U.S.-Ukraine partition? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's, it's a threat of the, the problem, quite frankly, is uh, the assistance budgets across the board for the former Soviet space have gone down. 
Uh, so when, when, when Dick was the assistance coordinator, we had, I think, $225 million a year for Freedom Support Act money for Ukraine. Uh, next year, I think it's down to $70 million. Now, 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 part of this is Congress has just kind of gotten tired of the former Soviet space, so budgets have come down. Part of it is you've seen across the board a shift in resources, not just for assistance programs and for exchanges within U.S. government budgets, away from the former Soviet space to the Muslim world. Uh, so, and what's happening, I think, with the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation, uh, and I work with, with their people, I've got a couple projects I'm doing with them, but it's just, you know, they're having to compete now for a, 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 a pool of money which is getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, it's, it's, it's much more difficult now to get the funding than it was, say, three or four years ago. So, one last question, please. Yeah? Yeah? Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my question is very short. Do you believe that the uh, talk about split between Western and Eastern Ukraine is created in the Yanukovych Advisors PR firm and the general uh, media from the top. It's an election campaign and not come from the people. I haven't seen any big demonstrators, 50,000, sure. fighting each other. So my feeling that it's created by the media yeah. and by the advisors to Yanukovych and also by the Moscow uh, Do you agree with that premise? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, but I think the last real manifestation you saw was three years ago at this conference that took place near Donetsk at the height of the Arms Revolution, which I think was incredited part by the Yanukovych campaign as to counterbalance the fact that you had a number of Western Ukrainian cities which were basically saying, we don't recognize the result, or they were saying, we recognize Viktor Yanukovych as president. Uh, I think this was a miscalculation on the part of Yanukovych's team. <coughs> the fact that there was a backlash against that in the, in the country, and you basically saw politicians back away, and within a week Yanukovych himself had backed away from it. Uh, so you know, I, that was, I think, a top-down phenomenon. I think, that, I mean, certainly if, if you look at the demonstrations, I mean, the people no, around Yanukovych in the last few weeks learned some lessons. Yeah. They, they put in a request for a permit to do a demonstration on the Maidan before the Yuschenko people did. I mean, that's smart. But of course, folks who went down and talked to the demonstrators found that generally the protesters down there were not very interested, you know, didn't really care what they were, but they were being given a daily stipend to be down there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, again, that suggests to me that you know, the divisions here uh, are much more, it's an elite battle. And I, I think there's, there's probably frustration in Ukraine. Um, now, it's changed, but, but at least three weeks ago, there was a poll that said like 60% of the population opposed early elections. I think that's out, so now flipped to 60% now would support them. But, but I think there is a general level of frustration in the population with sort of all politicians that you know, they seem to be so obsessed by this effort to, to gain power, you know, but you don't really see an effort to sort of push forward the policies that the country could use. But why Yanukovych is opposed to early election? Does he know that socialists will never make the great? Well, therefore, he won't be able to form a majority with, with communists. Yeah, no, I, I, I think actually, I mean, yeah, I think Mr. Moroz of all the politicians is the one that does not want to see early elections right. because yeah. I think the socialists really are in danger. Yeah, of that. Yeah, in danger. Uh, in the Ukrainian system, in the, to have a seat in the parliament, the party has to get at least three percent of the vote. Right. Uh, the socialists had a had barely four percent. Something, yeah. But. Right now it's about 2.1%. Yeah. So with, with Moreau's alliance with Yanukovych, he's probably given up about half of his party in the next election. However, you know, the, the last numbers I saw last week said that four parties would cross the threshold. Right. Uh, 
regions would get about 36%, the communists would get 4%, uh, and then the combination of Yushchenko and Timoshenko would get about 32%. When you, when you do the math and you add up the numbers, that's like kind of the rata that you have today. Yeah. Uh, and so, I, I, and Yanukovych has, and he said very early on, he said he opposes uh, early elections. He said that the Yushchenko decree of April 2nd, he believes is unconstitutional. But he also, within a few days, was saying if the constitutional court rules that the decree is constitutional, he will accept it and, and go to early elections. But why is he fighting? He's afraid of something. Well, I think it's you know right now you know if, if the situation you know stays as it is, he's got a, a coalition which is supportive of him and has a majority in the Rada. You know, elections are always a gamble. Right. So that, that's a problem with elections. You can never tell what's going to happen. So I mean, I, I think he's he, he the situation you know is, is comfortable now. I don't think he's afraid of elections, but you know there is a risk that the elections might go against what the polls are suggesting, and you know, he could lose the coalition. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Ambassador Morningstone Piper for a great The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.